You're listening to the Relationship-Centered Learning Podcast, a podcast to inspire and empower you to be a difference maker in a dysfunctional educational system. Hear weekly from adults and students who are having a radical impact in the education space as they share from their minds and hearts, giving us practical tools that we can take back to our classrooms and campuses. Here to take you outside the educational box is author, disruptor, and your host, Kevin Curtis. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. On today's episode, I sit down and interview Dr. Alvin Haywood. Dr. Haywood is an educator of 34 years who retired and has many more journeys. He continued to work with uh, state legislation in California to help reshape reading and expectations of students in the classroom. And then he also was diagnosed with malignant cancer and has published a book where he shares his stories. But what's interesting about today's conversation It really goes back to his beginning of his career in the classroom where he talks about just sharing your story. And teaching in the 70s, what I was really intrigued about today's episode is how he was putting, as he uses today, a human approach as teaching in the classroom, which was, you know, not in the majority back then, and how he struggled through that mindset and how he kind of worked his way through education, realizing he stood out. But for us, a good thing, you know, building relationships, telling his story, and then ultimately using his story to make a difference by creating a literacy program in his garage and ultimately writing a book about his uh, journey through transformation of cancer. And so I really encourage you to enjoy today's conversation. Hopefully you'll see the parallels of what we talked about and that we take away. If you want in more information about Dr. Haywood or more information about our CSRP coming up in June 22nd through the 24th in Austin, head over to rclfirst.com and you can click on uh, the link about the conference to be a speaker at our conference in July or any other training opportunities or resources that we have for you today. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Let's get started. Welcome to the Relationship Centered Learning Podcast, where we put relationships at the center of all learning. I am very delighted today to have Dr. Alvin Hayward. Uh, Dr. Alvin Hayward, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. Glad to be here. Absolutely. So, Dr. Hayward, before we even jump into today's content, we always talk about connections before content. We do that in what I call the flip five format. So, uh, Alvin, I'm going to ask you five questions. You can ask me five questions just to get to know each other a little bit better. I'll start off with just something simple. So when you look at your favorite pair of shoes, what what's your favorite pair of shoes that you are most comfortable in? Is it like dress shoes, tennis shoes, house shoes? What's your favorite, most comfortable pair of shoes? My favorite uh, comfortable pair of shoes would be, I would say, dress shoes, black dress mm-hmm. shoes. Because when I when I I feel like when I get into my favorite dress shoes, I'm I'm pretty much going someplace formal or or <laughs> you know, or I'm going to take some photos to do my story, parts of my story when I write my books and my you know excerpts and what have you, and I have a photographer. So I always have my best shoes on. Mm. There are there are times I do have my comfortable tennis shoes on, but most often. I will dress up. I love it. And I love shoes. So you would be, uh-huh. you, I, I don't know how many pairs of shoes you have, but I, I have a large amount of collection of shoes because just like you said, the more I started getting in front of people, the more I wanted to make sure I looked 
the part, right? Right. And, yeah. and I think there was something that we were always taught growing up, particularly in our age group, that was like, you know, they kind of judge people by their shoes sometimes, you know, and I got lots of compliments, the better pair of shoes that I wore. And so, and being on my feet all the time, I really wanted to have something comfortable. So I'm with you, a good pair of nice, comfortable dress shoes. I think it not only looks good, but it feels good. Yes, exactly. All right. Question number two. If I stick with a dress, are you a tie guy or a no tie guy? Do you like to wear ties or would you prefer to not wear a tie? You are asking very comfortable questions for me because without having to think about it, I am a tie guy. Oh, um, that, go ahead. In fact, you know, years ago when I first started teaching school, uh-huh. I always thought I had to have on a tie because at that time, you know, I don't, I don't want to date myself, but I started way back, you know, a long time ago. And we, we were in that dressy era where, you know, the formal school teacher had the tie and the suit mm -hmm. on. And for a long time, I could not come out of my suits and ties. And I remember when I finally did, and it felt so good, you know, to be. <laughs> but I just felt like, you know, a teacher is supposed to be dressed up that, right. was, that was the mindset. Well said. Back in the 70s. Let me just say it. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was a mindset. So, you know. I obviously did not teach during that era. I was a little 20 years later than that. But what I will tell you is I was a high school coach and teacher. And so it was interesting because what I realized is, is when I got into administration, I really thoroughly enjoyed the ties. Uh -huh. right? oh. So all of a sudden... I loved having ties. So much like shoes, I started just gathering lots of different ties. I love yes. different ties and textures and looks and, right. and, and mixing, mixing and matching. And so yeah. before you knew it, I just really loved the dress clothes part of it. It, it just felt good when I yeah. wore a tie and I wear a really good, nice, yeah. comfortable pair of shoes. And they always say, when you look good, you feel good. And, and yeah. I started to experience that. Yes, and also I learned too, and I don't know if, if it's that much now, but you know, really, even today in some in some circumstances, people do react to you differently when you're dressed up and have a tie on. They kind of see you, and I don't know whether it's always positive or negative, whether it's always positive, but in many cases, it's positive. Absolutely. Uh, so, so, so question number three, I'm going to go back to your childhood. So okay. was there, was there a meal that you're either your mom or your grandmother, somebody made in the family that you just had a childhood meal. Do you remember a childhood meal that you would just really thoroughly enjoy or look forward to when they cooked it? Uh, my family, my parents uh, were from New Orleans, Louisiana, and uh, my two older sisters and a brother were born there. Okay. And uh, then they moved to California and myself and a younger brother were born here in California. But my mother was really into the Creole cooking. Okay. And gumbo, <laughs> uh, greens and cornbread, jambalaya. Those are the things that I really remember. And they talked about New Orleans all the time. Mm. So those kinds of meals, yes. Uh, I would say if you, you ask for one, I would say greens, collard greens, mm -hmm. meat, uh, yes. corn, cornbread, that, that was it. Yes. In fact, it was about, oh, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, I got introduced to hot water cornbread and I had never had hot water cornbread. And um, it was I was up in East Texas and mm -hmm. visiting a friend and his mom was making cornbread. But he said, hey, we're going to have hot water cornbread. And I was like, wow, yeah. I've never had it. Um, delicious. Oh, my God. Just a I remember texture. That. 
Yeah. yeah. I remember that too. Yeah, absolutely. I just think food and family and memories, it's amazing when I drive back to the side of town of San Antonio where I grew up, I can I can start to like start to satiate like foods and uh-huh. like a, a restaurant that I used to eat over there. I could start to get these memories of food. And I think yeah. sometimes yeah. brings back a lot of memories. And so that's why I chose to ask that question. Yeah, and it's a perfect one because food is connected to family. Uh-huh. To so many other things. Absolutely. So question number four, out of all your years in, in getting an opportunity to to be in many different places, if you could live in just one place, where would you love to live? Right where you're at, or would you prefer to live somewhere else? You know what? I, I've traveled to different places, both in the United States and abroad. Uh-huh. And everywhere I go, I enjoy those places. They're beautiful. I have not been to Texas that I can remember, but I've been to several other states. But I find that everywhere I go, it's always so beautiful. You know, and you see, you know, you see things that you don't see when you're at home. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, home is where I'm comfortable, and it, at home is where you know you know home. Mm-hmm. I know when I get back home, I'm not going to be getting lost. Yes, but, sir. but that's not always in concrete. I can get lost here too. But uh, <laughs> but I, when you're home, you're comfortable, and you know home. And you know they say there's no place like home. Absolutely. But. So in answer to your question, I, when it's all said and done, I'd rather live where I, you know, in the place where that I know, uh-huh. which is here. Right. But so many other places, I'm sure I could live too and, and, and love those places. But I, I, if it all boiled down to choosing, I'd rather be home in a place where I know. Absolutely. Well, Texas has been my home my whole life. But uh-huh. I will tell you, I think as I've traveled, I, I it used to be Colorado, but I recently, I will tell you, like, if I could live in the Nashville, Tennessee area, Nashville to me is, and even in the surrounding areas, it's not only beautiful, a lot of hitch, history and culture. Uh, yes. I'm, a, I'm a country music fan, so a oh, lot okay. of country music, but uh, I, I don't know, recently Nashville has popped up as one place, man, that I think that, oh, I could live there. If I could live somewhere else right now, I think Nashville would just, would rise to the oh. surface. Yes. All right. So last question. We'll, 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 we started with clothes. We'll finish with clothes. When you put your socks and shoe on, are you a sock, sock, shoe, shoe? Are you a sock, shoe, sock, shoe? How do you put your socks and shoes on, Alan? Oh, it, interesting. My God. That's a question. <laughs> that, that's a different one. That's a good one. Whoever thinks about that. <laughs> but when you brought it up, I thought about it for this morning. Okay. Now, and I, I, I would hope that I have a memory as far as this morning. <laughs> Yes. But it appears that I am a sock, sock, shoe, shoe person. Me too. Yeah. I put on one sock and usually the left foot. Yep. Usually the left sock, then the right sock. And then, you know, I put on my shoes. Yes. It's so funny because I have the same order. I go left, right, left, right. So, Uh so, so very similar. But believe it or not, I have met some people that are sock, shoe, sock, shoe. They put a sock and a shoe on. And it's talking oh. to you. And it, 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 it's just very interesting because, again, right. everybody does it different. But I think in our own world, we kind of just take it for granted that everybody does what we do when it comes yes. to things like that. Yeah. All right, Alvin, um, you get a chance to ask me a few questions to get to know me better before we jump into today's episode. So what would you love to know about me, sir? Well, let's see. What was your favorite subject in school? Ooh, believe it or not, it was writing. When I went into education, I really thought I was going to be an English major. 
not that I like to read, but I was very much into creative writing. So creative writing and writing in that sense was just something where I could write poems, short stories. Yeah. Just even, I even wrote a little, a kid's book um, back in high school. And so there was just so much that I was thoroughly in love. And I will have to say it was possibly also because of my, my language arts teacher in high school, I had her for two different years, back to back from regular language arts to to creative writing. And so I think she had a lot to do with shaping it. But I would say back then, the first thing I would say is creative writing or writing. Yes. Interesting. And same here. Uh, writing was one of my, in fact, in the uh, preface of my book, mm-hmm. I even say in that short preface on that first one of the first pages in my book, mm-hmm. ironically, that you bring that that you say that I tell how. As a child, you know, I was, I didn't know that I was going to end up in education or teaching at that time, but I was really, I really like, I would sit down for hours and just write letters and form letters like, the, you know, the, the uh, manuscript letters mm-hmm. and the cursive letters, mm-hmm. if they don't do any more cursive, but, but I would do that as a child, mm-hmm. just practice and drawing. And I didn't know that that was probably one of the ways that I was being prepared because I really loved writing as well, just as you see, and that developed into love for writing and, and mm. drawing, because I think writing involves drawing as well. Absolutely. You know? So, yes. Uh, okay, so question number two, if you could have been anything else other than somebody in education, mm-hmm. you know, as per se, yep. what, what career would you have chosen, do you think? I think I would have been more involved in outdoors education to youth. That's always been my dream. I wanted to take youth outdoors and show them hunting and fishing and camping Uh-oh. and respecting the outdoors. I really love the outdoors, but um, it, yeah, I think if you ask me and, and and I've had a few people say, if you could, if no money was an object, what would you be doing today? And that's it. I would be opening up a youth outdoors facility where I could just bond with youth and teach them the outdoors. And, and that's where my favorite place is. And so it's kind of a win-win situation, but that that's where my mind goes when I think about that. Oh, interesting. Very, very interesting. And um, I'm not sure if I, w- I wasn't so much of an outdoors person. In fact, uh, let me just, uh, actually, I was an indoor person. I really liked being at home or, or being indoors. I really wasn't an outdoor. Although as a child, I did go fishing. We had a, a, a lake over the hill that we would go to and we would had a golf course and we would chase golf balls and then sell them back to the golfers. <laughs> yes. An early <laughs> entrepreneur. I love it. <laughs> but it really wasn't. I really wasn't into the outdoors. Uh-huh. Uh, but um, anyway, let's see. Uh, question number three. I, I hadn't thought about all of this, but um, what is your favorite mode of transportation? Oh, okay. When I travel, Obviously, not taking into consideration. I, I'm, I'm not a. I love to drive locally, but when it, when I started traveling, and I was up to sometimes 150 days a year, Alvin, I would tell uh-huh. you, fly, flying to me was just like even if I was going into and in Texas, you know, we're we're geographically so spread out. So like Dallas is four to four and a half hour drive from San Antonio, and you know, used to do it at first, and then I'm like, fly, it's 45 minutes or a 40 minute flight. So flying to me. It's something I was not comfortable with as a youth, but it is something that I grow. I used, I used to get motion sickness when I flew. And so now I'm so comfortable flying. Flying is just to me, my yeah. favorite modes of transportation, particularly even if I'm going just to Houston, which is three hours away. Oh. I, I'm, I'm like, I'd rather drive. I'd rather fly. I'd rather fly. Yeah. And anytime I can fly, 
I, I'd rather fly. I just think it's convenient. I'm comfortable with it. I trust it. it um, and it just, I've learned that time, you know, three or four hours, it sounds great sometimes. And there is times I need to drive, but I really thoroughly realized you gain back so much time if you can, if you can fly and get to your place, you know, you're on the ground and running within an hour versus five or six hours. Yes. And I think that uh, the more, as you, that was very important when you said that you used to get, what do you call motion it? Sick, uh, motion sickness motion sickness or air sickness. Uh, yeah. Yes. And I did too. And my ears would plug up uh-huh. all the time. And I couldn't hear for, for a long length of time after I got home from a plane trip. Mm-hmm. I, it does not happen anymore. <laughs> right. And I think that that's because I've been trapped. I had been traveling more. Yeah. I I think our bodies adjust because I will tell yeah. you, I've just become more and more comfortable. Now it's like second nature. Yes. 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 All right. Now, was that three questions? Yes, sir. We're on okay. number four. Okay. Number four. I don't know if you're on a daylight saving time there. We are. are you? Yep. You are. We are. What you, okay. What do you prefer? Do you prefer daylight <laughs> saving time where you have a longer day or do you prefer your standard time where it gets dark earlier? You know, it's so funny because I've had it my entire life with being uh-huh. in Texas. So we've always had daylight savings. And so I've always made the adjustment. But being an outdoorsman, I, I prefer the longer days. And uh-huh. just for the fact that you get right, you get that extra hour of outdoors time. So like if I was hunting or being outdoors or whatever, I would be like, oh, it's getting dark a little bit earlier now. You have to make that adjustment. So, right. you know, I, I, to be honest with you, I just like us to stick with one. Cause <laughs> yeah. like, uh, that's I, me. That's me. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but that's a great question. All right. Last one. Number five, sir. Let's see. In terms how much of an alone person are you? Do you like to be with people all the time? Or are you a more of an alone kind of person? It's a, gr- like yeah. a great question, Alvin. I'm more of an extrovert. Well, here's the deal. I think it's hard to be a full-time extrovert. There are times, like I said, when I want to disappear into the woods or yes. take a drive and be by myself. But for the most part, I think if how I'm particularly wired, I thoroughly enjoy being around people or in front of people. I'm most comfortable when I'm around other people. Not that I can't be alone. And like I said, I think the older I've gotten, the more I realize that alone time is key to recharging uh-huh. sometimes. So I think there's a balance, but if, but if I own it and I am honest to myself, I think I'm much more of an extrovert and prefer to be around other people. Oh, good. And I'm more of an introvert and was like, you know, by myself doing things, uh, reading and a lot of reading and a lot of, you know, but as I got older and especially, and, you know, I went into teaching only because somebody suggested it and I did that. Me, a teacher, you know, I don't like being up in front of people, but I did it. I took the teaching. It was a fifth year program here in California. It was It's a fifth year program. You get a BA degree in something else. Okay. And you get a, you go a fifth year. So is that degree. how you accidentally, accidentally fell into teaching? Well, and I have to say yes, because I want to be a social worker. I okay. didn't want to be a social worker, but I did that fifth year and I found out I loved it. Got in front of the class and I was totally different than I thought I was cut out for. The kids laugh and they have fun. They learn. And so you just never know what you're capable of mm-hmm. until you. But I was set to go. I want. I knew I wanted to work with kids, problem kids. Those mm-hmm. kids are having issues and what have you. And I wanted to be a social worker. And that was my undergraduate study. And then when somebody said, have you thought about teaching? And I thought, and they were really needing teachers here in California at that time. So I decided to do that fifth year. And I didn't have to 
to go into teaching. I could have still gone into, you know, whatever. Right. So think about it like this. Okay. When, when you said social work and teaching, what do you think brought the two together for you? In other words, you, you were you able to still take a social worker mindset when you were teaching in the classroom? Or like, how were you able Absolutely. to? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So talk a little bit about what that would look like. Well, I think wanting to be a social worker, first and foremost, you have to care about people. Otherwise, you should not be going into social work because that's, and you can't, and number two, you can't look down on people mm. <laughs> because uh, in social work, you're going to be dealing with all kinds of people with different issues, different problems, different backgrounds, and all of that. So I had that mindset that I was going to go in and that I was going to be first a human before I could be a social worker. I had to be human and deal with people on a human basis rather than on a professional basis, although you must be professional. Right. So when I got into the classroom, I saw that I had students who had different different experiences and that kind of thing. Right. I could not be up on a high horse, you know, dictating to students and, and, and have a mindset to fail everybody. I had to come in with a caring, just like a social worker, it was, that was the interaction. And I think I got into trouble with a lot of other teachers who didn't have that mindset because the reason how I came into this human thing and how you have to respect students, students have to trust you, that kind of thing. How I came into that, unfortunately, was how I saw the things that I heard coming out of other teachers' mouths Mm. about their students, about certain students. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, did she say that? Did he say, did he really say that about that kid? Unfortunately, I had to, in the school that I was first in, it was a school that had had this reputation because of the side of the town it was on, okay. that the kids couldn't learn and the kids couldn't this and the parents didn't care and the students can't learn and da, da, da. And I didn't believe any of that because I thought, no, listen, the kids that I have in front of me, they can learn. It all depends on what they feel that I feel about them. A lot of it does. And in terms of relationships, I was always like the social work thing. I, I would imagine social workers have to build relationships with their clients before they can help them. And I thought, I knew from the start, I've got to build the relationship with my students before they can learn. So I had to know that I had to respect my students, irregardless of what side of the town they were on. It's just a human thing that you have, you know, for people. If you're talking about being a people person, you just have a, a respect and you have a mindset that kids can learn. Now, they may not be at the level that you would like to see them at all times, but at least you can encourage them and not make them feel less than. Right. And wow. so I, I did a lot of that at the beginning. And uh, because of that, my students trusted me. And they would go home and they would tell their parents about me. And some of the parents would come in and say, we just never heard. My child has never been happy to come to school before. Never. Now, that wasn't only me. I'm not saying that's only because of me. Sure. There are other, many other people like that. But I didn't want to be on the side where a parent would tell me, have to tell me, my parent, my student doesn't want to come to school because of you. <laughs> well, it's interesting, Alvin, because you say, 
there, there were others like you. I don't disagree, but I will have to say, and now I may be stereotyping and not trying to blanket more stereotyping. You know, when I work with educators that started in the 80s and 90s, right? Yes. You're still going, you know, particularly in the 70s, there was that older mindset of the regime of understanding we were to stand at the, the front of the room, yes. deliver content. We were the controllers of the knowledge and you were students that were supposed to sit and quietly not be not be heard, not have a voice nor a yes. choice to sit there, right? So, yeah. what, so I'm very intrigued because when you describe this humanistic approach, I'll describe it as that. This humanistic approach to teaching, which came from the social work passion, it's interesting because you had, you had alluded to it earlier, but you had said you stood out because some of the other teachers were like, hey, like, that's not how we, you know, you're doing something different. And so you, yes. like, I had to leave. So that's are you at what, I mean, I just look back and as I hear your approach, I'm like, you had to be in a minority of how you're, you were student centered or relationship centered or humanistic centered, however you want to use it. But you had to stand out because a majority of teachers were not thinking and feeling that way at the time. Was that your experience? Exactly. You hit it right on the nail. And listen, it was very uncomfortable. <laughs> and I actually, I actually boycotted, I put on a boycott of the, of the faculty room at one of my elementary schools, my first elementary school. I told the, I decided I wasn't going in there anyway. And I, I wasn't going in there anymore. And I explained to my principal, I went that far. I told my principal, I said, I refuse to go into the faculty room because every time I go in there, I go in there feeling good about what I'm doing. <laughs> I go in there feeling good about my students. I come out feeling like, oh my God, are there any good children in the world? Are there any? Are students all not able to learn? I mean, they talked about the kids so bad. I didn't want to be a part of it because it really affected me. Mm-hmm. And so yes. I told him, I'm not going in there. I want to stay as long as I stay out of that faculty room, I can feel good about my students. And because I feel good about them, they feel good about themselves. Mm, yes. And so I did that for a long time. I eventually ended up leaving that school, but I stayed there for 17 years at my first elementary school. I stayed there for 17 years Ooh. and I fought most of that time. It was about respect. That's what in relationships. Positive relationships. Forget all of this negative stuff. I want to be positive. I want to be able to pat my students on the back. I don't want to segregate them in the classroom according to reading groups where they end up racially segregated because of a mindset and the way the last teacher had them segregated. They wanted you to segregate them the same way. I'm not doing it. I'm going to put the ones you thought were in the low group, I'm going to put them in the top group and and give them the resources to adjust and make it and function there. Right. Don't tell me that there are certain kids that can't be enriched because they were saying, oh, he doesn't have the skills for that. But what they what they were doing with the skills, they were in, enriching, quote unquote, enriching the students they thought could be enriched. But those kids over there, you got to keep them in that ABC workbook. I'm not doing it. I'm going to uh. take, I'm going to enrich them. They still need the, the phonics and the 
the basic reading skills. I'm not saying they don't need that. Sure. Everybody needs that. But I'm going to enrich them that when I get through with them, they're going to be ready for algebra or whatever. <laughs> you know, you know what I'm saying? It sounds like what you did not place on them was the limitations that the education system typically was placing on. Yes. And I'm going to use the air quotes, those types of kids, right? Yes. Because, you know, Alvin, I've only worked in Title I campuses and predominantly students of minorities, students of lower socioeconomic, students that struggle in reading, students that struggle. Yes. So, you know, even though I started in the 90s, I still heard all the way through the 90s to the 2000s. In fact, until, until I left 2015 to do this work, you always heard about the limitations. There were We were still putting limitations on students, the ability, their ability to change, their ability to grow academically or behaviorally. Yeah. And it was so interesting is when, if you just treated them different. And so here's a, here's a perfect example, Alvin. I had a young man when we started restorative practices, which was just all, like this relationship approach, but also, you know, like looking at alter, alternatives to suspensions because suspensions as an administrator just was not changing their behavior, right? Yes. So I had this kid and they said, all right, we're going to start in sixth grade and you're going to pilot. Well, they had a kid who was in sixth grade and he was supposed to go to seventh grade but they retained him, Alvin. And uh -huh. so here we go. African-American, overage, special uh, special needs, economically disadvantaged, like every check mark in the category, uh -huh. right? Yes. Yes. And they said, you're going to retain him in seventh grade back to sixth grade. So when they brought him back to me, he was the highest referred kid in sixth grade. He had the most referrals out of all sixth graders. So when I, when I got him under my wing, under this yes. restorative pilot, I just sat down and had a conversation with them. And it was literally like, look, the past is in the past. Let's just do a brand new clean slate. And how I'm going to work with you, my goal is to not suspend you, to not send you to an alternative school or send you to some other classroom or to some other place that would take, I want to keep you here. But if I yes. keep you here, I need you to know, I'm going to love you. I'm going to support you. But here's what I'm going to need from you. I'm going to need you to, to work on growing, right? Your behavior, academics. And we went through those. Yes. Now, yes. and so what's interesting is as we went through the whole next school year, he wasn't perfect, Alvin. He was yes. still the same seventh grader. Well, he was a sixth grader who should have been in seventh grade. Yeah. But but I, I changed his teacher sometimes because him and the teacher just couldn't get along. And if I did suspend him, now I told him, hey, I love you. But you're uh -huh. home today, but you're going to come back tomorrow and it's going to be a brand new day. And that made a big difference to him. I'm oh, sure. Oh, so check this out. 54 referrals the next year after the one year with me, he went to four. And then in eighth grade, he only had one. And so I said, what was different? He said, um, you talked to me different. You treated me different. You mm -hmm. you like went to my house and talked to my grandmother. Yes. You're like you told me that you love me. Like all of these things. Yeah. He said, you just treated me different. And so I said, so therefore, and this is like a, like almost like rhetorical, but I'm like, so therefore you acted different. And he's like, I guess so, because that was the biggest thing. And I just had to convince the teachers, Alvin, like, hey, don't think of him as the kid who, who he was last year. Let's give him a new. And so a teacher, if a teacher couldn't give him a new slate, Alvin, I just changed the teacher. And they did not like me because of that. Yeah, But I told him, I said, well, if you can't give this kid a new slate, well, then I'll just find somebody who can. And they thought you that that's that's all you're, you're putting. What about us and the kids? And I said, 
hey, I'm just putting to make sure that this kid gets taken care of. That's my job. And so just by treating him, talking to him different, they act different. You hit the nail on the head when you said about give the child a new slate, because like I said, in that first school I was in, they passed it up. They passed it up from one grade to another by filling out these little cards about the child. You know, he's in, you know, they had three reading groups, one, the top group, the group two, group three, you know, he's a, and I will hear them say things like this about kids. Oh, he'll always be a group three child. Ooh, he'll always be this. He'll always be that. He was a behavior power. Oh, and his parents, watch out for his parents. Mm -hmm. Well, see, they're setting up, setting up continued failure. Right. And uh, so I was blocking, trying to block a lot of that and counteracting a lot of that. And I got into trouble with it, but uh, I stayed on it because I knew it was the right thing to do. Well, absolutely. So then how did you go from teaching into like leadership and administration? I didn't. I I didn't. I didn't until after retirement. Okay. I taught at three different elementary schools. And then I taught at a middle school before I retired. Okay. I said I taught at two middle schools. uh, But anyway, I retired from a middle school, but most of my work was in uh, elementary. But anyway, when I retired, the cancer came upon me, you know, out of nowhere. Within, oh, I retired 2005 okay. and I was stricken with the cancer in 2007, about a year and a half later. And so that just thrust me into a lot of things that I hadn't done. I had an administrative credential when I was teaching. Right. But I never, I tried, I applied to certain administrative, a couple of them, and I didn't get them, but I was kind of relieved because I needed, I felt like I needed to be in the classroom. Right. I, I felt like I could be right there with the kids more. But uh, anyway, I started doing public policy stuff after retirement, after the cancer. I went back and got my doctorate degree okay. after I got up from cancer. And I started working with public policy organizations. And I worked on a committee uh, for uh, looking at legislation in California, for legislation that affects children from kindergarten through grade three. And okay. if we felt that it wasn't appropriate, we wouldn't support it. But I was on that committee for three years, I believe, state committee. Okay. With the Washington, D.C. and that kind of thing, meet with legislators. So I've been doing that. And then it went into publishing. I, went, I thought, well, another way I can do this in a really broad way is to start writing my own books. Right. And that's where I got into writing. And I have two books out, other books besides this one. My first one's on uh, cultivating early reading development. Oh, okay. And then the second one is students loving math and what's reading got to do with it. And I talk about those things about students loving math. Well, the reason why they can love math is because we've just scared them to death about math. And when they get to high school, it's like, oh, my God, if you don't pass this class, you're worth nothing. You're not going to get into college. You're not going to be able to do this. You're not going to do that. And that's all centers around algebra one, right? Yes. In fact, I don't mean to stop your story, but there's a gentleman in Oakland, California, and his name is uh, Eric Butler. And Eric Butler is like the restorative justice coordinator for Oakland, uh, Oakland uh, Unified School District. And he was sharing with me when we were doing this work, he started sharing with me. He said, Kevin, the difference between selling drugs and going to college and being successful, algebra one. Oh, there you go. That's so funny. Not funny, but that is ironic that you were mentioning because he said, Kevin, if my kids can't pass algebra one, they can't go to college. So therefore selling drugs and running, doing other things. 
is the only alternative for them. So algebra is like the gateway yes. of academic success in life or not. And if you're human, Kevin, if you're human, would somebody, I mean, what am I missing here? If algebra one, that one, that course, if we're going to be so inhumane that we're going to judge a, a child's life by passing an algebra one class, which nobody has ever shown me has a lot to do with, <laughs> with I'm anything. still trying to figure out how, when I use it. So I'm just saying. Yes. And yet it can kill people. I mean, it can just totally destroy your livelihood for a future. Yes. Yes. And so in my book about math, particularly, I said students loving math. I want to put that in right at the top of the title. Right. Because they can love math now, but it's the way you present it. And you need to stop telling, and, and even parents. I, now, I don't really usually talk about parents. Yeah. But there are some parents who often, they don't know any better. Never tell your child, I wasn't good in math either. You know? Right. Don't tell them that. I mean, you know, that's just my opinion. No, no. You're, hey, you're entitled to your opinion. Because I think it's been my experience. Once you tell them that, then they have an excuse not to do well in math. Right. Well, my mom and dad wasn't good in math, so therefore I'm not good in math. Yes. So if you weren't good in math, keep it to yourself. <laughs> I love it. Don't 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 limit your child by your limitations or what your past limitations you yes. may have experienced. Yes. And even in my third book, my my third book is you have I, I I don't know if you have it, but take up your bed and walk. I tell my story, my journey through cancer, and I do have something on relationships on page sixty nine. Ironically, that okay. I, I have here on page 69, I had said storytelling or sharing your own personal story, whether it be personally or in a book or however, because everybody's not going to write a book. You know, right, right. I have storytelling or sharing your own personal story is an old ancient literacy strategy that often results in a new or stronger relationship between the person sharing the story and the listener. So I think in terms of relationships, part of it, a small part of it, of all the things that we do and all this thing that you're doing in restorative, and I'm sure that's part of it because I feel it as you talk to me, you're telling stories. Yes. Right? In your restorative, I can tell in your work because you've done it here with me. You've, you, you've told me some stories that have helped me sitting here. Yes, sir. And so I built a relationship with you. I feel like I know you. I didn't know you at all before I got <laughs> up here. I feel like I know you now. Yes, sir. Because of the stories you shared and that the stories we share with each other. And I ironically have that in my book. So with our students, they see us as human and down to earth. And as your student told you, that seventh grader or sixth grader, whatever mm -hmm. it was, uh, told you, you know, you told me you loved me. You told me so many things, you know, he can make it and you were going to stick with him and da, da, da. But that was a story. That was a narrative that you gave that student that caused him to be drawn to you. And that is pervasive through, if we take that approach and that mindset, it becomes pervasive and a lifetime. I think I heard you say somewhere, or read somewhere where you said you were a life, uh, lifelong learner or something. Yeah, I mean, I I, I feel like the, all this work has done for me, Alvin, yeah. is, is, is slowly start to transform me in my 50s. I'm like, okay, I'm learning. Yeah. I'm learning about myself. I'm learning about kids. I am too. Uh, and 
even if I'm not necessarily reading all the time, the conversations and the experiences. In fact, I'll be honest with you, this podcast, you know, will be 60 something episodes when you're air. I have learned so many nuggets of great information surrounding experiences with building and, and sustaining relationships, because what you were describing on page 69 in your book goes back to the very first episode I did on this one was it with a gentleman named Joe Beckman. And Joe Beckman, ironically, is not an educator, but he helps educators recognize the power of human connection, which is what yeah. you know, being human, right? Uh -huh. And he had said, from the outside, too many educators are true, are too busy trying to be extraordinary. They just need to be ordinary. And oh. when they're ordinary, they make what J, uh, Dave Stewart Jr. calls moments of genuine connection. He calls it, an, in fact, you know how we love, uh, we love uh, acronyms in education. So he, Dave Stewart Jr. calls them an MGC, a moment of genuine connection. Uh -huh. so, so all we're doing in life, Alvin, is with our significant others, with our families, with our friends, with our students, you know, we're looking for those small opportunities to say, how can I make a moment of genuine connection sitting with this man next to him at the airport? How can I make this moment of genuine connection right. when I'm in front of my class, but education has shaped me and then I'm supposed to be the power keeper of information and I'm not supposed to smile nor laugh or show any emotion. I'm supposed to be in control Yes, in all of those things. And that's why I say, stop that education. Somebody needs to tell educators it's okay. And in fact, not as only is it okay, it is an expectation that you be human, that you show, you know, vulnerability and that you, as you mentioned on page 69, you share your story. Yes. If you don't share your story, your kids are going to sit back and be like, right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, no, I ain't buying this guy. I ain't, I'm not buying whatever you're selling or whatever you're bringing because yes. you're not real. They have a BR meter. We always talk about BS. I just say BR. The kids have a be real meter. Right. And, and Dr. Hayward, what you've been in the what you've been describing this whole entire time is you just said I'm going to be real and authentic and human for my students because without that you see no power to transform them through education, information, uh, self-worth. I mean, every single human being, but I always say, particularly for teachers, don't forget every student wants to feel valued, seen, and heard. Yes, yes. And you know, I wish you were, I'd had you at my schools, the schools that I had worked at years ago. But because, you know, in, in all honesty, it was hard to find people who took that approach about, because they, I guess it's just, it was tradition. They had been taught themselves that there are certain people who belong in group three. Mm -hmm. I don't care. You know, maybe once in a while you have somebody in, you know, that doesn't look like us who may be in group one. Yes. But, <laughs> but, ordinary, but ordinarily they don't belong in that group. So you've got to keep your thumb on them. And so it was just traditional and it was carried on that, you know, uh, those kids are the bad ones. They're going to be discipline problems. So you have to start off on day one and you have to put your thumb. You have to let them know you are the boss and then send them to the office, you know. And if, so if you keep sending them to the office and they're lining the walls of the office, then they that's what that's who they behave like. You know, you, you treated them like criminals, so they start acting like criminals mm -hmm. from kindergarten. I mean, I'm, I'm talking kindergarten. Mm -hmm. No, I, 
I, I saw it in action in, and I saw it in elementary when I was an elementary assistant principal. I would see it. it I mean, it, some people say it's the 90 10 rule. You spend 90% of your time with 10% of your kids because that yeah. same, that 10% Alvin is the same one. The teachers are like, go to, go see Mr. Curtis, go see Mr. Curtis. Go yeah. See, oh go. yeah. And you, so, know, you know, you know, you've been there on that. Oh, it's yes. So, it, but that's what I'm saying. If I see the same kid, I got a great relationship with Alvin because I'm spending more time with them than you are as a teacher. Yeah. And, and now they like me. Now they yeah. want to come see me. So now they oh, act oh, up. Oh, see there? Oh, what a what a great! Oh, that was oh that was that was rich. What you just said. Oh yes. Yeah. Alvin, wherever they feel valued, seen, and heard, they they yes. it's like light. They will go to. And in Texas. I don't know how Cali. I can't remember. I've worked in. I've worked in California quite a bit, but every state's different. But in Texas, we have a discipline alternative education placement. So a kid for mandatory drugs, alcohol, weapons, or something could be placed on this campus. But in Texas, for a long period of time, if you have persistent misbehavior (PMB) is what it was called, if you persistently act up, we could send you to that other campus for 30, 45, 60, 90 days. Alvin. Uh-huh. And when they would come back, they would recognize, it was like all you did was hit pause. So you would go, those kids would go to that other campus, but on that other campus, these were people who knew, I mean, you worked there because you wanted to work with challenging kids. So you saw them, you heard them, you helped them be successful. I'm not saying all, but a majority of those kids would go to that campus and their grades would go up. Their attendance would go up. Their self-confidence would go up. All their behaviors would decrease. But then they would go back home. Ironically, we call it the home campus. Yes. But Alvin, it never feels like going home. Earlier, you mentioned about like living here because it feels like home. They would go back to that campus and it would feel like the island where people are like, Alvin's back. Uh-huh. Yes, yes, okay, yes. let's see how long he lasts. Let's yeah. see if he learned his lesson. Let's see if he can follow instructions this time. And they, it, they would not give him a clean slate. And as soon as he would act up, uh-huh, that's what I thought. So you that's just what think I- it. And the kid would say, you know what? Screw this. I want to go back to there. And yeah. they would deliberately make yeah. poor choices frequent enough, or they would break a Texas penal law that would send them back, do drugs, alcohol, they would do it again, just so they could go back there because in that other place, they felt valued, seen, heard, and loved, which equals trust. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, you know, the same, we have those, we have, they call them alternative high schools here. Okay. And um, I'm not sure exactly how they run, but it's a child who is probably the same with with your system, a child who's not academically up to par and failing all the time and behavior and that, that, that. Mm-hmm. and we have at least one alternative high school in each city, one or two or whatever. And it's the same thing. If they go back to their home school, they're probably going to be sent back in the same, sent back into the same regimentation where, you know, you didn't have your, some of these high schools have the kids, you know, you have to, they have these grading things on the computer where they grade, you know, you get 10 points for this and you get five points for that. And you get 20 points for having your notebook in order. And you get five points for turning in all your homework. And it's 15 points. It's like a prison penal code. And so if a child doesn't, a student doesn't have his notebook exactly in the order that the teacher has to, see, they're looking for some way to justify failing you. 
Correct. It's the system is set up for you to catch you failing versus helping you be successful. Yes. Which is why when we train how to break that cycle, we do a whole re-entry piece. So a kid, when they go home, there's actually a, a support system to catch them on the home campus. And yeah. so we we actually train in that. We call it re-entry circles. And part of what you just described is, as I always say, this is this is why we have the school to prison pipeline particularly of our students of color, right? Because when we suspend them and they run the streets, they're more, they're three to nine times more likely to be involved with the juvenile justice system. And then once they get in that system, they're kind of stuck. So what they see is the parallel between the two systems in the alternative system, in the traditional school, they go, they go back and forth. And then somewhere along the line, they end up in that juvenile justice system and it, and it just kind of catches them. And then it's just a, a, a whirlwind cycle where they can't break out of it because one, nobody's giving them a chance. Two, they didn't pass. They didn't get the, the right amount of points. They didn't pass algebra. They didn't do something academically successful. So the system just leaves them over there. Yes. So to tell you, Why I quit education, Alvin, is I was sitting in my office at this middle school, and when we got our discipline report, uh, we had led the district with 1,149 types of suspension. Oh, my God. And and our kids, 50% were Hispanic, 30% were African-American, and yet we had more students of color suspended than any other campus in the entire district. And our district was about 67,000 students at the time. That's how big the district was. And when I got introduced to the school to prison pipeline and what it did and how, like we talked about with college algebra, that means every time I suspended a student of color, which was 80% of my kids, Alvin, they were set up to fail. And then what, and then I started seeing their stories, seeing it play out. And so Alvin, that's why I left education. I said, I'm a cog in a wheel of a systemic approach that sets our students of color up to fail. And I'm, no offense to the district I work in, but nobody was going to change because I was upset. Yes. So I said, they're just going to replace me with another cog and they're going to keep suspending. Yes. And so yes. I said, I got to get on the front side and I got to, I got to do something different. I got yeah. so much like you went into st- helping state legislation. That's what I, said, I did. Right. Yeah. So do you see how we both said we got to do something yes. before this can happen and bigger picture. Yes, because I talk about that student Please do. prison park pipeline. And, you know, and like I say in my book now, and then ultimately when I got after I retired, then of course I had got came down with the cancer. And then at that point I was fighting for my life, you know, in terms of getting well. And so it took a whole broad and you know, I believe in prayer and what have it. I just yes, know sir. that God healed me. And I talk about that in my book. And I, you know, I went through that and prayed and I know I got an answer from God. I got an answer from the scriptures and that kind of thing. Yes, sir. And um, at the same time, I also say in my book that I don't condemn medications. I don't suggest that anybody, if God says you're healed, I don't suggest you go and take all your medication and throw it down the toilet. Although some people (laughs) may, and I say that in this book, because I said, this is what I did. I know God healed. See, we have to learn that in my book, I tell about the revelation I had. You can read it in there. I had a revelation while I was dying Mm -hmm. that God was telling me I was healed. And yet I was saying to God, how am I healed? And I'm going through all this pain. I cannot take all this pain. I cannot do this. And God kept saying to me, but I said, you're healed. My word says you're healed. And in the book, I say that. So how God led me up and started me, had me start. I started a reading clinic in my garage. 
And that's where the real autonomy began. Just as you were saying, I'm in my garage. Nobody can tell me what to do in my own garage. Yes. And God has spoken to me. I hadn't even started my 28 days of radiation therapy. I had cancer at that time. Or at, least, or at least I was healed. God was telling me I was healed. And then he said, go start a reading clinic in your garage. This is after retirement. And I had all my boxes packed in my garage. So I went in there and started unpacking and setting up this reading clinic, which became Haywood's Reading Language Clinic. Before I went in for, now I didn't say, oh, I, I didn't call the doctor and say, you know what? God told me I was healed and I'm canceling the 28 days. Now I could have, that could have been in order had I felt led to do that, but I didn't think that would be the right thing to do. Right. I pay, I pay health insurance. You know what I'm saying? Yes, sir. And you use your health insurance. You get your medication. Don't be throwing all that expensive medication down the toilet. Right. <laughs> and so I went through everything knowing that God allowed me to get up. I went through my, I stopped with my clinic for those 28 days and I drove myself to the hospital back and forth, got on the table, let them do what they needed to do and all of that. And it didn't have to work because I hear of so many people who go through all of that chemo and this, that, this, that, and other, and it doesn't work. They still, but I, this has been 14 years for me now. Wow. That was 14 years ago and I'm still thriving. So I don't call myself just a cancer survivor in my book. I say I'm a, I'm a cancer survivor thriver. Thriver. I'm doing more now, I feel, for people and kids and young people than I was able to do in a formal school setting. Right. Because I can go where I want to go and I can, you know, take my own program. Yes. And be led. And so, and that's what I, I do say that in my book. And I talk about the spiritual side and I talk about the importance of following your pharmacist's instruction, take your med- medications. You know, I'm not too holy that I can't take a flu shot. Right. I'm not too holy that I won't get the vaccine. Right. And uh, the COVID vaccine. So I tell people in my book, God works through the, he allows the medication to work. You know, at least for me. Sure. This is your story, brother. This is, and if somebody wants to stop taking their medication, I'm not against that. That's their decision. But I'm in my book, I say that wasn't what I was led to do. You take your medication. As the pharmacist said, take it three times a day. I'm taking it three times a day because I'm hurting. Right. I'm in pain. Right. And I'm taking it. So, but it, you know, even if you take it three times a day, it doesn't have to work. You can still die. Right. But for God, I know that God intervened. And, uh, you know, you know, I'm not going to stop breathing because I think God is going to breathe for me. Right. <laughs> yes. You know, you know, so you have to do it. it say, uh, Faith without without works is dead. You know, Ooh, you book of James. Pardon? Book of James. Yes. 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 And so anyway, I, I didn't mean to get off into the book part, but. No, um, no. So so let's talk a little bit about it. What's the title of the book again? Remind me. The main topic. Can you see that? Yes. Right, there you go. Right there. Yeah. Take up your bed and walk. This is my story. Right. And yeah. the paper, take up your bed and walk is from uh, John 5 and 8 where the man at, at the pool who had been yep. sick for 38 years yep, and he didn't have anybody, an angel would go down into the water. But he always complained. He couldn't get in fast enough. Because somebody, yeah, somebody else would come in and jump ahead of him. Yep. And then Jesus came along and said, you know, take up your rise, take up your bed and walk. Right. And this man took up his bed and walked. So I liken my story to that. I took up my bed, spiritually, figuratively speaking. Yeah. Walked. 
And I've been walking for 14 years when I was, when they, you know, I had gotten, and I tell in my book how I had gotten out my clothes to be buried in. Mm. I had actually got them out. I had finalized my will. Mm -hmm. I finalized it. And uh, because, you know, there is a time that at some point we, we gonna die. And, uh, but God was saying to me, it wasn't my time. Although they were all the signs were there and I was in pain. I thought at the, at first, I really thought, you know, from what the doctors had said, Mm-hmm. And again, it has a lot to do with people's words. Words have power. And even the doctor can scare you to death, mm. you know, with the way they present things. It's just like teaching. I had right. a doctor when the doctor came in and gave me the news. It's the way he did it that was worse than the disease. I mean, he came in, had no tact and said, Mr. Haywood, you have, um, by the way, it's Haywood. I don't know if you, it's W-O-O-D. Okay. It's not yet. He came in and he said, Mr. Haywood, you do have cancer when it, after when the results came in, my first biopsy back in 2007, before I went through treatment and all of that. He said, you do have cancer. And he said, the cancer is, is malignant. And he said, it's growing fast. And then he slumped and he had this gloomy look on his face. No tact at all. That's scary. You know, that right. is one of the most scariest things you can go through because you were intending to live and to do things. And the doc, and it's not what he's saying because he's got to tell you. It's the same as teaching. It's not what teachers say. Many teachers say it's not what they say. It's how they say it that can make or break you. Mm-hmm. And so he said the way he said it was a very dooms way. You you have cancer. It's malignant. It's growing fast. And then he slumped down in the chair like he was just despondent and didn't know what else to do. And I had to really get a hold of myself and get up and take control. And I say that in the book. Mm-hmm. I, and then I kept going to him and he never got any better. He was just, just a negative person. Mm-hmm. Just that he wasn't friendly and hardly ever smiled. And so I got another urologist. I went, I asked my doctor to refer me to another urologist and I've been with him ever since for my regular checkups and everything. So I bring that up because in my book, it's not just in teaching that you have people like that that destroy kids. Even in, med- in medicine, you have doctors who don't know how to, and medical personnel who don't know how to talk to people. Mm-hmm. They don't now know how to give you news right. and share your condition. And they can do more harm than good. And you need to get out of there before they kill you. They'll kill you before the disease. I, don't be- <laughs> I know what you mean. I know. Well, there were, because we're, well, Alvin, words have power. And so yes. what, what you're describing is tone, timing, circumstances, yes. all of yes. the things that surround. But I, I think it goes back to what you said very at the very beginning. What you found to be a very successful approach for you was having this human-centered, humanizing that people were human and they hurt and they have emotions and they yes. need connections and they need to know that you care. So as you mentioned earlier, it's the the parallel of a teacher or somebody in the education field unpacking information. Yes. Now, obviously, we're not talking about sharing something like somebody has a, a, a you know a potentially deadly disease, but yes. just the fact that they're sharing information. Yes. With a human centered approach, and then you compare it to a doctor who, at this point, unfortunately, has to tell you. This this unfortunate news, but his approach, his tone, yes. and everything around it 
needs to treat you again. Like you need you, you just because you have cancer doesn't need mean you need to be valued, seen or heard. Yes. And you know, in the book, I also say that, um, cause I had done the research and the research says doctors themselves say, I believe it was 40 to 50% of doctors feel that they received inadequate training in how to uh, transmit bad news to patients. Mm-hmm. 40 to 50%, I believe it's like somewhere around in there. They felt they didn't get that training. So many of them don't know how to, because you need to really know, because when you go back to get a biopsy results, right? you don't need a doctor who's going to come in there laughing and playing. I'm not saying that. Right. I'm not saying that, but you need, but you don't need a doctor who's going to come in there with an obvious, he's through because what he saw, he's just so done that's scary you know at least come in and you know you don't have to smile you don't have to laugh you don't have to make a joke but at least be comforting uh you know caring caring don't act like you're so scared and done with the whole deal yeah done and (laughs) done and doomed is not what i want to hear from my doctor exactly uh, when, when delivering this type of news yes well, Alvin, yeah. well, Alvin, listen, you know, I want to honor your time. This has been a, this has been a fascinating and fun conversation. Yes. Um, yes I, I love your story, not only how you stood out as an educator in a time when that was not the norm, and then two, how you were able to say, even after retiring, you found another way working through state legislation and those types of, of, of committees to continue to realize, hey, I want to impact education that way. Then yes. you open up a literacy center in your garage right in the middle yes. of being diagnosed with cancer. Yes. And then and then lastly, just, just your attitude and godly approach and more of God-centered, which is really relationship-centered to me, yes. of how you chose to tackle and take on this deadly disease, but with the right attitude and with the right circumstances, as far as following medication and following what you believe God wanted you, led you to, yeah. to be healed and to, and to be able to share this, these, these words and this, and this story and this written book 14 years later, I think, I think it's phenomenal. Congratulations. Oh, thank, you. thank you. Thank you. So if people want to find the book, I'm assuming it's out on most platforms. I saw a post that's on Amazon. Is that correct? They can just go to the best way. It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. It's even, there's a video. I'll send you, it's a little clip that the publishing company did. I found that it was also on iTunes and I don't know how it ended up on iTunes. I guess you go to, but it's there. I don't know what that meant. I didn't know they put books on iTunes, but maybe because it has music in the video. Right. Something like that. But um, but we'll make sure that we put all of that in the show notes so that people and there's a link that they can click on. So they yeah, can. Well, I can send that to you later of the video. But the best way is just simply to go to Amazon.com right. and type in and just type in Alvin Haywood. And I, and I said that because, you know, it's not Hayward because people right. get that. Mix. It's not they want to type in W.O.O.D. Haywood. Yeah, I was just making sure. I was like, man, am I jacking up your name, Alvin? I apologize if I'm Oh, no, 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 that's all right. That's all right. I believe you sound like you were saying, hey, word, were you? Oh, I have no idea because once you oh. once you corrected me, I was like, OMG, this whole entire time, I'm talking about making people feel valued, seen, and heard. Well, maybe it and, doesn't, it, it just came across as you were saying, hey, word, hey, word. No, we'll do that. No, and if I did, I certainly apologize. No, uh, that's, that was, that's okay. That's okay. Although you're not the only one, a lot of people do that, and then they'll. You know, even on my, when I got my COVID vaccination, uh-huh. 
I'm, I'm fully vaccinated now, but when I got my first shot, the nurse, and then, you know, they send you out to sit down for 30 minutes, 15, yeah. 20 minutes, whatever. Yeah. And I went to sit, she filled out my card and I went to sit down and uh, I sat there for 15, 20 minutes. And lo and behold, before I left, after standing in line for half the day to get that first shot, uh-huh. I looked at my card and lo and behold, she spelled my name, Hayward, H-A-Y-W-A-R-D. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's not valid. It wouldn't be valid. You know right. I, yes. So what did I have to do? I had to push my way up again and say, oh, my gosh, she spelled my name wrong. So I'm just kind of, you know, fanatic on that. No, 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 no. Push no. my way through and, and have them direct me back to that nurse. Right. She had to change that card because it would not have been that. But anyway, that's what I'm saying. But if they go to Amazon.com, it's simple, yeah. that's the simplest way and type in Alvin Haywood. They can do Dr. Alvin Haywood, but even Alvin Haywood. Yes, sir. But if they type in ARD, it's not going to come up. That's what I'm saying. Gotcha. Alvin Alvin Haywood. And then my books will pop up, all three of them. Nice. Well, Alvin, it was a pleasure to finally meet you kind of in person, virtually. But at the end of the day, your story, your, your, your success in life is just another testimony to other listeners and other educators and people who may be struggling or going through a a treatment for cancer right now. I think this book can really help start to transform. And I think it goes back to what we just said earlier. I think what your words written and verbal today are just exactly what we were talking about earlier. It's, it's, it's your approach, your written words, your, your verbal words today have power. So I want to thank you for your powerful words today. I want to thank you for your time. And I look forward to connecting with you next time. Yes, and the same here. I feel the same way about you. And I think you are a very unique person in terms of the role that you're playing and your mindset and your attitudes and how you've helped uh, kids. And you know what? Just sitting, let me say this before you, just looking at you and listening to you, I can just tell you, I know you're a genuine person. Because have you ever just looked at some people and they're talking and saying things that you can just tell there's something else behind there that's not right? And yes, it's sir. not genuine and it's like, you know, but I can just tell, I know you are for real. <laughs> well, Alvin, I, I really appreciate that. And you know, what's interesting, and I tell people all the time, it's because of this work that brought down the barriers that really stripped away any narcissism, any beliefs and biases and ideas. I mean, I have learned so much about human people and human connections in this work that at times, in order to be effectively a human connector, you have to look in a mirror sometimes. You do. And I think I look back and I used to tell kids to kick rocks. I used to tell those kids, Alvin, I'd be the one to like, this kid is never going to be six. I used to put the limitations. I Mm. used to use my words in so many different ways of not empowering students or myself. And so I appreciate your comment and, and your compliment. The reason being is I feel like for the first time in the last couple of years, Uh I'm really coming into who I really am as a person. Yes. And I think the the world, my two failed marriages, education. I mean, I've been having to reshape myself in so many different ways. For the first time in a long time, I'm just, I'm not reshaping for anyone. I'm, I'm getting to be me. And I'm figuring out who I am. Yes. And and that is that is such an empowering piece of Thank life. You. 
Oh yeah. my God. It's so empowering to start to figure out not just your why, but who you are, why mm. you are. And, and then you get to meet people like you through this platform. And you just think like, you've made my day a better day today, just by listening to your conversation. Like you've made my day a better day by listening to this conversation. And so I'm going to hope that our listeners feel the exact same way. So as we close up this episode, what I'm going to tell you listeners is check out Alvin's book, head over to Amazon, find out his story, share his words, and we will connect with you next time.